Hi everyone, I'm Frank Keith of Sweetheart Pub, and welcome back to the Music Rookie Podcast. This week's guest is Emma Swift, a Nashville-based singer-songwriter by way of Australia, and currently living in London, as we did this interview, who recently released a record called Blonde on the Tracks in 2020. I wanted to talk with Emma to discuss her release model for the record, which by all accounts was successful, but it's a little different by today's standards. She did not release the record to streaming on the official release day. Rather, if you wanted to hear the record, you had to buy it. It turned out to be a great way to drive sales in a streaming-centric world. And although she did ultimately release the record to streaming platforms later, It wasn't until she had gotten as much out of direct sales as possible prior to doing so. Now, if you've been keeping up with our newsletter, several weeks ago, I published an essay about an atypical release strategy that looked a lot like this. There's a million different ways to release a record nowadays. You don't necessarily have to follow the rules. That's with air quotes behind the microphone here. It all just comes down to what your goals are for the release. Do you want Spotify editorial playlists? Do you want to sell out of vinyl and CDs? Do you want to grow your fan base on social media? Or do you want to drive traffic in another way? It all comes down to you and figuring out what plan works best for your release. There is no, oh, this is how you become Katy Perry overnight plan. Well, there might be, but I'm betting most of us couldn't afford that. So, with that, I'll turn it over to Emma to tell us about her release plan and what the entire strategy looked like beyond just locking it away from streaming. And she'll also give us some tips for other independent, developing, up-and-coming artists. Hope you enjoy. Let's get into it. So, recently, my business partner Rachel and I have been kicking around, I say recently, it's been just, it pops up every few months, working on atypical record release strategies. And your Blonde on the Tracks release is always first on my brain. And I say atypical, it's probably actually just a more traditional release, you know, giving the bird to the streaming platforms, at least for a little while. So I just wanted to talk to you about how that release plan came together, kind of the genesis of it, and how you executed it. So for the record release uh, strategy for Blonde on the Tracks, what I really wanted to do was treat the album as if it was 2002. So (laughs) I kind of ignored the streaming model as it is today, and I really focused on selling vinyl records, CDs, and cassettes and digital downloads. It was sort of born out of the idea that not only do I love physical product and I, I'd made an album rather than a series of singles, but also the pandemic made it kind of financially necessary. I wasn't in any way able to take this record out on tour. I wasn't going to be able to sell it at shows and I didn't need the free advertising that is essentially what happens with, um, streaming services to bring people to shows because that wasn't, they didn't matter. So, so that's what I did. So we avoid streaming services. What is, what does it look like 
for the rest of a release plan. You know, all the moving pieces, publicity, radio. From where I'm sitting, I don't think that affected you at all. I think those those looked like they worked out for you. But did you notice a, a change in any of those facets? Well, I think one of the challenges is that I'm never going to know if the record might have been more successful had I put it on streaming from the get-go. I feel like it was a very successful marketing campaign though, regardless. So, I mean, what I would say to anybody is that I got played on rotation on more than 50 Americana stations across the United States. It charted in the Americana charts in Europe, UK, and the USA. It was a top 10 Australian record because they still count physical sales. And so being able to say that and being able to put that on my social media is perhaps just as effective, if not more effective, um, than, hey, I got added to this playlist that a hundred other songs are on and you're going to have to look for it. A part of the strategy was that I wasn't making the whole I wasn't making it impossible for people to find the record in that while the album was not available wholesale on Spotify or Apple or Tidal, those platforms, I did put the singles up on YouTube. So there was a place online where people whose curiosity had been piqued either by radio airplay or a magazine review to go and listen to the music for free and decide if it was something they were into before they went to band camp and committed to, you know, spending 20 bucks on a vinyl. So there were some breadcrumbs out there. I, I totally missed that. Forgive me. No, not at all. Because I mean, part of the thing with this release strategy was that it was a little bit, it was very experimental and, and I didn't have everything kind of very planned out. I just sort of tried things on for size and started seeing what was working for me. And, and what's unusual about that is I, I don't have a record label. I, 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 it's my own record label. I do. It's my own record label. So I was able to do things that most people on a label, I think, wouldn't be allowed to do in the current climate <laughs> or, or they would be strongly advised against. So you've either got to be like me and totally indie where it's like I'm doing it all myself or you've got to be like Taylor Swift on the other end and dictate the terms because you're famous enough to be able to do that. <laughs> yeah, right. There's, she, she's got the muscle now for sure. You, you touched on something that I was leading towards earlier. The thought that ran away from me was, yeah, editorial playlists and labels, like you said. It's, they're, they're treated like currency now, right? Like, oh, well, this song got added to Indigo. You know, this, this, this artist must be legit, but I'm, I'm not sure the value is really there in that it's a win. Sure. But top 10 record in Australia. Yeah. I mean, it's really, I don't know with editorial playlists because I mean, just for, for listeners, the background of my record is that I announced it in on May 24 of 2020 as a physical and download-only release for sale on Bandcamp with videos on YouTube. The album came out on August 14 of 2020, all old school. I had physical distribution, so it was on in record stores and, and, the, and those places. And then 
it went to streaming services in December of 2020. So for the bulk of my publicity campaign and for the duration of the time that I had a radio plugger and a publicist, every little bit of press was pointing towards my Bandcamp and my YouTube and not any other channels. And then from December, it went more broad. I did get added to some editorial playlists. I'm on some editorial playlists right now. And all I can say is that, I mean, I don't have a huge Spotify footprint. I don't have a huge number of followers, but I didn't gain a huge number of followers by being on contemporary folk. I'm enormously grateful, but I I might have 25 new people that have found out about, you know, that have bothered to look me up because I kind of think that editorial playlists in a way they're like background music for shops. <laughs> I don't I don't know that people really use them as a music discovery tool the way that we're being told yeah. people do. Yeah. Um, I completely completely agree on that. And I think that's good for listeners to hear that you stayed off of streaming platforms but still got a placement at the end. So, hey, if that's important to anyone listening, it's still a possibility. Yeah, and I mean there's certainly people too who who do very well out of Spotify and et al. Like if you have a label that is going to negotiate for Spotify to pay for your billboard, then – knock yourself out because billboards are expensive or you could sell records and buy your own billboard like i've i've paid for my own mural on the side of grimy's records in nashville and part of the reason i was able to fund that was because i sold 200 records at grimy's records nashville the market it just shifts all the time how we consume music shifts all the time and and being able to to shift with it is is a really good thing for an artist. Yeah, I agree. Definitely have to stay on your toes. Let's pivot a little bit. Another thing we talk to our clients about all the time is that there's certain things when you're putting together a release plan, executing a release plan, that have to get done. And some people hire that out. Some people don't or they can't find anybody that wants to work with them, worst case. But no matter what, that stuff has to get done, and that's going to fall to you, the artist. You seem like you're pretty involved in your day-to-day. Yeah, I I work pretty hard. I pretty much treat it like a full-time job, and that involves all the unglamorous and and quite tedious things of, of running a music career, but they're absolutely so important to do. And I'm still learning stuff all the time. But yeah, I'm, I'm pretty involved. So how many, how many team members did you have working with you on this last release? And what is, does that change from release to release for you? The key thing for me for this release was that I had a, a publicist in Britain, a publicist in the United States, and a radio plugger in the United States as well. It just meant it really broadened my ability to get press in different places and different markets. So that's sort of three publicists or it's two publicists and and a radio plugger. And then my record got distributed in Europe by a different label and they took care of European 
publicity. So I didn't have to be on the front foot as much there. However, by signing that deal with them, I earn far less per CD sold in Europe than I do per CD sold in America, like from a business. But but I know nothing about selling records in Europe, so it was a really good decision. I'm really happy. And I also had a friend of mine, a woman called Emily Warner, basically manage the campaign for me. So she was on my on my website like as my management contact just for that four-month period of time where things were pretty hectic and, and, and we needed good communication and, and good coordination. And I would recommend that to anybody, putting out a record. If you can hire a project manager for three months who is just going to be like, okay, even if they're just someone who creates a to-do list and then helps you tick that off, that is extraordinarily helpful because it just helps so much with getting, staying on the case. It's, I see a lot of my friends and other, and just other independent artists in general, like put out a record and then, okay, we made the, we made the announcement (laughs) and then kind of walk away from it. It's like, oh no, you've just started. Before we part ways here, advice to advice to musicians specifically independent musicians what should you be focusing on or you know things you would do differently in the future my first tip is to give yourself time because that's what all the pros do. They give themselves a really good lead time. They don't just finish the record and then go, okay, the record's out. Now let's just get it out into the world. I've done that before. It was a mistake. You've, if you've made something with love and care and, and put time and effort into making the recordings and the writing the songs, and you kind of have to do that on the release side too. And that means, you know, for for your record to have good awareness, like you want to contact a good team, a good publicity or radio about six months out at least and then decide on a release date that is about three months out from you know, you want to have you want to have a good announce. You want to be building three months of hype before the record is even in the store. I think, yeah, um, that and then give yourself time, and that is exhausting. And you have to be on there telling people about the record every day, and finding new ways to tell that story about about the album is is really important and I think just loving the music of other people really helps and seeing what other people have done that has been successful and kind of studying it also really helps because there's quite a lot of successful independent artists who aren't going to be household names but they do make a living from music and they're able to do it because they're they're conscientious and they and they're smart about it like following what pop stars do is not a good release strategy like a sudden drop only works if you've got 
3 million followers, you can go, wham, here's my new album. But like, if you don't have that, you actually do need to invite people in. Yeah. Create a bit of curiosity. The other thing is that, and you know, this it's all it's all hard-earned stuff from from stuff I've worked that before that hasn't worked out. Your audience can be anywhere in the world. And so it's really, really worth investigating who is making music similar to you or who you're a fan of in places where that works. Like where like for me, I I've made an indie folk record. I know that there's a market for indie folk in Britain and Ireland, so I hired a publicist there. I know that there's a market for folk and Americana in the US, so I hired a publicist there. It's not as big in Australia. <laughs> yeah, it's it's getting there, but but it's not as big. So it's always worth just exploring where that that the audience could be somewhere that you don't expect it to be. And the third thing I would say, I guess, is just don't be too hard on yourself because you make the music because you love it. It's not it it's up to other people whether they love it or not. But at the end of the day that tr- that really doesn't matter. Because it's your baby and you are the person who has to, it's got your name on it. It has to be something that you like. And if only 500 people like that, that's okay. That's great. 500 people like your thing. But like I've used all kinds of platforms like Submit Hub and stuff where they review your things and some people say really horrible shit. (laughs) And that sucks. And I guess I'm saying this, you know, as much for myself as anybody else, but it sucks when people don't like what you do, but at the end of the day, it really doesn't matter. I <laughs> just don't lose sight of why you started doing this in the first place. The rest of it is noise. And I guess the flip of that too is because there's always going to be people who don't like what you do, when people do like what you do, celebrate your wins like some people get a bit too I don't want to say that I got this nice review or we got added to this station or whatever it's like I would say be shameless just own it like (laughs) anything that gets your music out into the world is a really great thing to be grateful for and it's worth celebrating and there you have it Thanks again to Emma for taking the time to speak with us today. If you'd like to learn more about Emma, or just keep up with her in general, head over to her website, emmaswift.com. Emma was also kind enough to send me a bullet-pointed list of every team member she had for this past release. So I'm going to drop that in the podcast description. And if you'd like any more information on any of the folks listed there, feel free to reach out. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already. If you have a specific question for me, Rachel, or any of our previous guests, feel free to tweet us at SweetheartPub or shoot me an email, frank at sweetheartpr.com. I try to make myself as easy to find as possible. And if you're interested in more insider information like this, be sure to check out our weekly newsletter. You can sign up on our website 
sweetheartpub.com. This episode was produced by me, Frank Keith IV, and our show's theme music was also produced by me, Wink Wink. And with that, go do something useful. <laughs>